WGN. It's Amy Guth with you today. I haven't been here in a minute. Because, Sarah, it has been, I don't think I've been here since April. I missed you. I, I missed you. It's I'm delighted to see, you. to see you. I love working with you. I it's You're so much fun, but also I know the music is going to be awesome coming Thank in you. at a break. <laughs> Thank you. I do what I can. You know, I do what I can. How have you been? Pretty good. Uh, trying to find different ways to stay busy. Aren't we all? Yeah. You can say that again. In the new way. Yeah. I've uh, been doing a lot of home remodeling. Oh, So that's been a uh, majority you know, of my time. I think I saw you post something about that on social media. Yeah. I feel like I uh, saw some kind of project. That's all I do. I'm going room by room through the entire house. Well, when you're done, you come to my place and you can do whatever you want oh, to no. make it nice. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I am not for hire on that front. Uh, you can book me to DJ. That's about it. Yeah, I am not right. for hire to do any more housework when I'm done. Yeah. I, that's one of those things like... A home improvement project sounds like an awesome idea at the beginning. And then by the end, you're like, can this just be done? I feel like it sounds great in theory because then you start seeing, you know, when you watch HGTV, you always see the finished product. And you're like, wow, that looks really, really nice. And you do not see the 30 people behind the camera on their crew. You just see like Chip and Joanna doing things. Right. You just see one or two people just, you know, hacking away at something with a hammer and a nail. It's like, oh, I can do that. And then you go to Menards and you look at... The finished product stuff, and you're like, yes, I love this flooring. Yeah. This ceiling looks great. And then when you go home and you start tearing up your carpet, and then you just realize, like, I have, like, 10 more steps before I even get to open this package of flooring. That's right. To lay it down. And I think HGTV has made us want a result quickly. Yes. You know, we don't see the part where you have to patch the wall and then sand it and then get all the dust out of there. Right. And then, paint. you know, you're just like, oh, that's cute. They put this color on the wall. I'm going to do that. Nope. 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 Not at all. There's so much more until you get to that pretty point. That's exactly right. Well, what are you tackling now with your home improvement? Right now we're doing the dining room. Okay. So Monday I got a new roof put on and there was water damage in the dining room. So the ceiling fell. So I was able to look up and see my roofers for a couple hours there. Oh, no. Um, so now, you know, we started working on the ceiling in the dining room and realized that the carpet was just kind of done. So I was just like, you know what? If we're going to do it, do it, we're just going to redo the whole thing right was, now. That's the other thing. You kind of get in this like, well, now that I've pulled back this floor, I realize there's water damage. I got to do that. Oh, now there's this. I got to fix that. And it's like this domino effect. I had a really weird thing happen. I was sitting... I've been working from home. I record the podcast from there every day. And I'm sitting there. And the minute I turned my microphone off, which was sad because I wish I would have caught my reaction, I turned the microphone off and this very loud noise, I'm on the top floor of my building, hit my ceiling and tore through my kitchen ceiling. But it didn't come all the way through. It was just this thing. And I was like, what is that? There was a pipe that was from the era of the last pandemic that when my building was gutted, it was built in 1906, it was gutted in like 2014, they left that pipe there suspended from above by concrete. And it had just been sitting there and sitting there. Wow. And, and of course, so it, it, it chose 2020 to give up and say, no, I'm letting go of this pipe. And that a giant pipe that used to be like a return pipe crashed through my kitchen ceiling. So how'd that go? That was, how, how did you go about even fixing that? Um, I called someone else to do that. <laughs> I, I was like, I am going to need a minute with this. I said, I don't know. Well, first of all, I tweeted about it. And so there was people were speculating about what could have just crashed on my ceiling. And people were funny about it, right? Because they were like, well, it's 2020 and everything's happening. So it could be anything, be a meteor be, or anything. Yeah. They're like, it's a meteor. Maybe it's a piece of a Elon Musk satellite. Maybe it's a the grandfather of the murder hornets. Maybe it's like an alien. Maybe it's this turns out someone sent me a a tweet that said oh this happened to us and it was a piece of ice like a giant piece of ice in the middle of summer this like space ice that came through atmosphere i was like you know what at this point it could be a great white shark and i would be like sure right with 2020 it'd be like absolutely yeah of course i had a great white shark uh fall through my ceiling in the kitchen today (laughs) you know just just another thursday in 2020 just another thursday here in chicago with the great white sharks falling through the kitchen it's fine but the contractor who came to fix it he was just like what in the world? How did you do that? I'm like, I, I did nothing. I was just sitting here. Like, I, I don't know. It just this giant piece. And it was like stamped on it, this like 1917 pipe. And I'm like, well, it's done. My, I was like, even my building's giving up on this year. 
I feel like everyone's just kind of gave up on 2020. I feel like when the pandemic first started, everyone was just kind of like, yeah, you know, we can get through this. Yeah, it's a few weeks. 2020 is still my year. No. And then like maybe no. that second month, everyone was like, yeah, we're done. Yeah. 2020 is a wrap. <laughs> maybe 2021 is my year. I know. I, I really have this idea. I want to put together like a, a collection of essays from different writers talking about like what did not, a, a thing that didn't happen this year. A lot of things didn't happen this year. But in their lives, like a personal thing. Like oh, I know like people personal that delayed a wedding. I know people that, you know, had a really big milestone birthday planned, a big important trip, like think like a a big deal thing that like you had to radically change a big plan in your life. Like I think that would be fun to ask a bunch of writers to do that. Absolutely. And I just gave that idea away. Do so you, have, else gonna do you do. have anything that you were really looking forward to this year? Um I was going to go on vacation for the first time in ten years. Oh, and that I was, hurts. I know. <laughs> that so, hurts. Right. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to pull the trigger on these tickets. And then I was like, hmm, this thing, these news headlines are kind of troubling. I'm going to wait and see how this plays out. And right. glad I did. So, Wow. Yeah, I know. you got lucky. I mm. was going to make my DJ debut mm. in LA. Oh. That got cut. Yeah. I was taking mm. my mom on an all expense paid trip to Vegas. Oh. That got cut. Yeah. Well, good news. Vegas will still be there. Yes, it will still be there. Um, and my 25th birthday is coming up this month. And uh, I really can't even do what I was going to do for that. You're such a, and I realize we have to go to break, but I like you are such a wise and worldly person that Thank I you. forget that you are 25. Thank you. I forget <laughs> I that I could that. be your mother. I forget that all the time that I could literally be your mom. <laughs> Thank All you. right. On that note, uh, let us go to break. We are talking with authors today. I'm super excited. We have three authors joining the program today. All have written about vastly different things, but really, really interesting books. I cannot wait to introduce you to all of these cool people back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth. Thanks so much for being with us today. I'll be with you until 1.30 when we turn things over to Chris Bowden for the pregame today. Not a thing I thought I was going to be saying there for a while, but nonetheless, here we are. But today we are talking with three different authors. I am so excited to talk with our first guest. Lee Weiner was born and raised on Chicago's South Side. His activist life started in with free speech demonstrations at the University of Illinois in 1960, included community organizing in impoverished neighborhoods in Chicago, and led to his indictment in the notorious Chicago 7 trial in 1969. His later political work included direct response fundraising for members of Congress and national nonprofit organizations. Along the way, he collected a couple of master's degrees and a PhD in sociology. His new book is Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven, and it is out this week from Belt Publishing. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you being here. Welcome. Uh, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Oh. Or- well, I appreciate it. I mean, perfectly. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, so let's start by talking about the book. I, I, I'm so interested in this book. I, I think it's such an important snapshot of history. Why was right now the time that, that you wanted to, to tell this story? Well, it, 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 the impulse to, to write the book and the pleasure of getting it out now was to let people know uh, that a political life is important that, that, in, that back in those days there were things from then that people can learn now um, and be able to act together to continue the political struggle, renew the political struggle for social and economic justice. Something nice. I think there's so many themes of the book that that are at, were as applicable then as they are now. Uh, you know, from from the book, your your publisher describes it as you know a, a nation locked in conflict between the conservative old guard and the young and visionary new. A grassroots movement sweeps the streets, demanding civil rights and revolutionary social change. And a presidential election looms on the horizon. Does any of this sound familiar? And, and indeed, this kind of this what a mirror of of that time and of now. Um, what you know, when you are, have been talking about the book, because it is so deeply personal for you, how are, how are you describing the book when you, when you talk about the work? Look, I, 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 I tell people, they ask, even if they don't ask, that's an attempt to seduce, 
to convince, to show that um, people had in the past struggled against injustice and that that struggle is a real thing. One can live one's life as a political person and it is one's best self that you can do lots of other things, uh, but being political, working with others, um, is something which is vital to being a full human being and being patriotic, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, some of this comes across on it does not. But there's a special joy here. I mean, like yesterday, I was on the phone with one of my kids, who lives out in Portland, and we were laughing about the differences between the CS gas that I experienced, we experienced in Chicago all those years ago, and the stuff that he's running into on the streets in Portland. So that that across use kind of stuff it doesn't change. That is, people need to mobilize themselves together against injustice. They have to work together to fight an oppressive government, um, an oppressive economic power, and that that working together has special joys, has dangers and unpleasantness, of course, but it also is a really, truly wonderful way to live. And what advice would you have? <clears throat> Sorry to interrupt you, but what advice would you have um for for young activists right now who who maybe feel moved to act in 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 their world right now, you know, looking at at all the work you've done in the activist space, what would you say to a young activist to to make good use of their time and and move thoughtfully? Okay, I think two two things possibly. Look, we learned in those days long too long ago that the internal conflicts and arguments about the legitimacy and importance of different kinds of work, like local issue organizing, electoral politics, peaceful mass protests, or righteous, righteous violence. It didn't make any of that, none of that work made any of the others illegitimate. Um, however, uh, back in those times, the unbridged differences between otherwise allies, people of different colors, cultures, genders, classes, sexual identities, all had competing claims on priorities of war. Those differences that were never resolved between us helped destroy us, helped shatter our movement mm-hmm. on top of the government repression. Today, far better than we ever did, people now are working together. And so that for young people, there are just enormous range of things to do, from joining people on the street, in peaceful protests, to working electoral politics, to finding neighbors who are pissed at the ATMs in their neighborhood and think that that bank should pay higher property taxes. You know, there's lots and lots and lots of stuff to do. Hmm. They should just do it. Mm-hmm. The borrowed yeah. phrase. Yeah, <laughs> right, that's right. And for you, you know, writing this as... as uh, as a memoir, what what was that process like of of revisiting these these times in your life and and sitting down to write them out? <laughs> a lot of it was horrible. So I write. Um, about three years ago, I moved down here to Florida, and thank God, because what it meant was when things got too tough in front of my computer keyboard, uh, I could get up and go for a walk. I got a tan, <laughs> trying to recover emotionally from what I was remembering and what some of what I was writing. Um, so it was a process. Um, lots of friends are dead. Um, many are not. Um, but those times had both joyous moments and frightening and hurtful moments. Getting it down on paper and figuring out you know, I had a good editor. said, no, you can't put this down. You'll get sued. Okay, okay, I won't put that down. Um, convicted ex-wives. But um, it was hard, but necessary and important. I hope people take the time to read it. Um, it's short. <laughs> An easy read. 
And we will be and an important one, I think. Yeah, yeah, we will be sure and share links to it. And I know I'll put links to the book out on social media after the broadcast so people can find it uh, and read it. Uh, taking you back to, to that moment, um, you know, there, there was a, a in the description of the book, there's there's a part that really there's a line in particular that stands out to me that I thought was interesting of um, uh, talking about, but also a little known Chicago community activist and social worker named Lee Weiner, who was just as surprised as the rest of the country to be caught up in a trial that would become a media sensation. When you revisited that moment of when when you at that time were suddenly in this very important moment, I'm sure there were so many emotions there. I'm sure there was a lot, a lot going on there. Were you, you know, how was it different to revisit that, you know, with with hindsight, with the gift of of perspective of hindsight? <laughs> I did respond to when it occurred. I mean, literally, the New York Times called me and said, "Hey, how's it feel?" Um, <laughs> um, and I was dealing with my mother-in-law then, who was babysitting for us, and she was just freaked out. So, um, and I knew most of the people um, for a long time. We used to speculate on who would get indicted. Surely somebody was going to. The Republican, newly elected Republican uh, government was fairly tough in talking about mouthing about law and order, much like our current president. Um, And the fact that I would be one of the people who would be indicted, nobody thought of that. Now, when I think back about it, okay, I had really long hair, really long beard, I looked like a maniac, and I could stand in for all the long-haired maniac students that were running around screaming and yelling. Hmm. So it made sense. We didn't see each other as representatives of, of anything in particular, but, of course, the government and the media could and did. Hmm. So it was like, Weird. Yeah. It's weird then, weird now. Yeah. <laughs> weird then, weird now. I think that's that's an understatement, but, <laughs> but fair enough. Well, I wish we had hours and hours more to talk with you. I, I think this is such an important book, and I really encourage everyone to read it, no, no matter what they, no matter where they find themselves politically. I think this is a really important book and uh, a really important one. So again, I'll be sure and share links to find the book. It is from Belt Publishing, and it, it is it is uh, very important. So thanks so much, Lee Weiner, author, activist, and author of Conspiracy to Riot, The Life and Times of One of the Chicago Seven. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you joining us, Lee. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Seven twenty WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth. Another good jam, Casera. You never fail to disappoint with your awesome music. Thank you. I you, do what I can. You are the literal best. You know, it pays to be a DJ. Let me tell you, <laughs> it does. And you're a good one. You you are, I'd say, the best one. Thank you. All right, we're doing books today. We're talking with authors. Uh, I'm so excited. I love doing book shows. I love authors, and I love talking about the creative process and what goes into a book. And our next author is. Another example of that. I'm so excited to talk about this book. Catherine Kinsler is a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago and author of How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do and What It Says About You. Isn't that a very intriguing title? I think that's so fascinating. Catherine, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So glad you could join us. Nice to hear from you. It's been a minute since we've talked. I yeah. I was trying to think. I think it's been several years since we've talked. Well, it's delightful to hear your voice. Yeah, it has. Okay, so talk to me about this book. This is such an intriguing title that I think really immediately sends your mind off in, in oh. many different directions. Oh, did I lose you? Amy? Yes, I'm here. Hello? Hello. Hello, I hear you fine. Are you there? Okay, we're gonna, I'm gonna put her on hold for a sec. We're gonna figure out what's going on with that and see what's happening. Uh, it, you know, sometimes the gremlins get into technology, you guys. I don't know what to tell you. We could hear her fine. You're my witness on that, but uh, we'll see what's going on. Anyway, I'm really psyched to talk about this book. 
after we talk to Catherine, we're going to be talking with author Michelle Weldon about her new book of essays. So we're it's basically we're having book club today is, is what the heck we're doing. We're having some book club. But a little bit later, after we talk to Catherine, before we talk to Michelle, I want to hear from you about what you're reading right now. I know there's like a lot of mixed feelings about reading. Sometimes some people are like, I need it to escape this time. Some people are like, nope, I need to uh, to not read and just be watching the news. Like there's a lot of things. So 312-981-7200, a little bit later on the other side of news after one o'clock. I would love to hear from all of you about that. Looks like we've got Catherine back on the line. Catherine, are you with us? I am. I'm sorry about that. No worries. You know what? I'm telling you, gremlins get into technology all the time and just things go haywire. It is not a big deal at all. But anyway, you were about to say about this book with this fabulously intriguing title, How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do and What It Says About You. So many themes come up right away when we look at that title of the book. Tell me about it. Sure. So, you know, when we look out into the world, it's really easy and um, unfortunate to see how many social divisions we have, right? And so, you know, it's really easy to see how we divide ourselves based on race and gender and ethnicity, um, nationality, sports team affiliation, right? You could come up with so many different examples of this. Um, But one thing we often don't talk about is the way we speak. And so the idea that, you know, how you say it, the way you use language is so important for how we connect, but then also how we judge each other and how we divide ourselves. Mm, That's so interesting because, I mean, I think we can all agree on that, right? There's so many different ways that we're dividing ourselves up, um, many to our detriment. So as you you started the process, well, actually, let's start there. What was the the initial aha that said, this is is what I want to explore in this book? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a developmental and social psychologist, um, and a lot of my research looks at how really early in life kids actually care about the way we speak. And so, you know, you can, uh, you know, a little kid who's just starting to figure out who's in what group, how, starting to kind of figure out how the social world works, they're really attentive of language and accent. And so from there, you know, finding that this is something that's really critical to us early in life, you see it everywhere with adults. Um, you know, from how we, you know, sort of how we treat people who are foreigners and speaking English is not their native language to people who speak in different dialects of English. Um, And this isn't just, you know, a thing in the U.S. This is really something that's worldwide that we're just constantly evaluating each other based on our speech. Hmm, That's so interesting. And and when you're talking about the way we talk, you you mentioned accents, uh, Mm -hmm. not natively speaking English, um, even regional dialect accents, things like that. Does this also go into the way we are using language like semantics? and, And, you know, I think there's a difference in saying like global warming versus climate change, right? Things like that. Yeah. Definitely. So there's so many aspects of our language, right, that can matter for how you're conveying information, how you um, how you hear each other, whether you trust someone, right, mm-hmm. whether you're signaling to them, I'm kind of a part of your group or not. Um, now, I do think there's something kind of special about accent. And, you know, if you've tried, if anybody who's tried to take a foreign language class in high school or college knows, it's so hard, right? So but hard. one piece of it, right, one piece of it that is so hard is sounding, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you could, you know, memorize a phrase perfectly, right? Like you could get the grammar, you could get the words perfectly if you were just, you know, really trying to learn something. But your accent is going to kind of always forever betray your native language in some ways, that it's so hard to learn a non-native accent and to sound native. So in that sense, when you talk, you're sort of showing the world some of the voices who are talking to you when you were a child. Mm, and there we get down to the kind of the crux of it is so, so essentially we're what what's happening in our childhood in terms of language is shaping us for a good long while. Yeah, it is. That's exactly right. Hmm. And so then if you are the parent or, or grandparent of young children, what can you do there to help raise a, a kid that is thinking really broadly and open-mindedly about various types of speaking and language? Yeah. So, well, one thing you can do is you can think about your kid's language exposure. So, you know, being exposed to multiple languages and I think being exposed to diversity more generally is really positive for kids. 
And so even if you're not bilingual yourself, if you find opportunities for your child to encounter people who speak in different languages and to kind of benefit from that diversity, it can be really powerful and it can help them think about things from different perspectives, think about people from different perspectives, and that can be really, really important for, you know, the development of open-minded thinking. Um, Another thing you can do is think about the words that you use when you're talking to your child. So, you know, back to your question about what other kinds of language can really matter. Now, when we talk about people as being members of groups instead of as individuals, it makes it a lot easier for stereotypic or prejudiced thinking to spread. So, you know, when you're talking about a new person, rather than referring to them as being a member of a group of people, just try to talk about that one person. And that's a really powerful tool to think about when you're talking with kids. What a simple but very powerful thing. And as I'm thinking back, I think that's how so many people identify for for so many different ways. Like so-and-so lives in this neighborhood. So-and-so is a fan Mm. of this team. So-and-so voted this way. So-and-so is a member of this ethnic or racial group. That is such a fascinating point. A simple one, but but like a very complex (laughs) one at the same time. Yeah, and it gets even, you know, more troubling when you're not even just talking about so-and-so as doing this, but rather people like this. So, you know, when you talk about all people who are from this nationality or from this racial group or people of this religion are like this, that's when you start to really start to think, okay, well, if you think everybody who's part of a certain religious group is kind of the same and you talk about them in that way, then you learn maybe one negative or stereotypic thing, and it's just so easy to spread to think about the whole group as being you know, the same in that way, too, even though they're not. Yeah, that's this is such a fascinating topic. I'm, I'm so language obsessed. So this is right in my right up my alley. I love this. What about okay, we've talked about kids. But what about adults? What can we do as adults to kind of check our own maybe subconscious biases and, and, and make sure that we're not unconsciously doing this with people we're talking mm-hmm. to and encountering? Yeah, so I think the same thing about, you know, speaking about individuals rather than groups of people, I think that applies for adults just, you know, just as much. Um, Another thing you might think about is when you communicate with somebody else, kind of reassessing your own communication tools and abilities. And so one one thing that adults often do is sort of overestimate their ability to communicate. This probably, you know, isn't surprising. Um, So the idea is that when you talk, it's not just about what you're saying, and it's not just about, you know, you say your thing and it's out there in the world perfectly for somebody to receive, but a lot of communication is about the listener, too. And we find that sometimes listeners can kind of shut down and stop listening when they don't like, say, the accent of the person that they're talking to. So if you're a listener, to think about when you're communicating with someone, particularly someone who's different from you, to remember that part of the job for communication, it's not just what they're saying, but it's also your effort listening. And so if you don't shut down, if you ask follow-up questions, if you engage, if you're confused, that that can help the other person do a better job communicating with you. Mm, That's so fascinating. I just I love this topic. And I think it's so interesting. So another uh, issue that that you raise in this is how COVID risks making our lives a bit more homogenous and and less Mm -hmm. multilingual. Explain what you mean with that. Yeah, so, you know, I think we're all shrinking our social networks right now, which from a public health perspective is something that, you know, we're being told to do, right? So, you know, you're not out there socializing with everybody you know. If you're having social encounters, you're really trying to kind of limit it, you know, and kind of create a little bubble around you and maybe just, you know, a few people that you're seeing. Um, And so, you know, I think what this does is it just threatens narrowing things for everybody. Um, And so, you know, we already live in really homogeneous networks. And so if you think about it from that point of view, well, you know, you're probably not reaching out to the full diversity of your network right now. Um, And, you know, so while we narrow, I think it's also important to just be aware of that, you know, for ourselves, but also for our children, that um, exposure to diversity and exposure to people who are different is really positive for all of us. And we don't want to lose sight of that. Yeah, that's right. And and I think that's an, that's a little bit, we have to call up a little more intentional effort for that in, mm-hmm. in kind of in yep. this moment when we're maybe limited to our immediate family or maybe a grandparent or something like that. Mm-hmm. How would you recommend people go about doing that in a time when so much of our exposure to people is chance meeting? You know, we yep. see people out in the world, but but now we have to be a little more intentional about it. 
I think that's right. And I think you're right. Your, your point of being intentional is probably going to carry out. And it's hard to know exactly, you know, exactly what situation every person is in or every school district is in um, and so forth. But I think just to have this in the back of your mind as something that when you have a choice, say, between interactions or even in thinking about virtual interactions and ways to connect with somebody um, who might be a little different from you, but you might have this opportunity virtually to connect or not to try to take that opportunity. Yeah. And and I think this is an interesting conversation, too, because so often when we talk about language, we get into the space of policing language that, that you know, everybody mm-hmm. needs to sound a certain way in order to be, I'm going to do radio air quotes, correct and proper, right? When in fact, you know... At, m- one proper is not another proper. There's a million different ways to communicate well. Um, And I think that's a really important part of this too. Yeah, I think that's so well said that, you know, we have, because we're so biased against speech, we have this notion of, oh, this is the better way of speaking. And this other way maybe isn't as good in some way, but actually, you know, languages reflect the people who speak them and all languages communicate all the content of human thought and have regular systems of grammar. And so there's no, you know, there's no one way of speaking that is inherently better than some other way. And I think it's really important to remember that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's an important lesson for so many aspects of life. I'm thinking job interviews. I'm thinking like just in the workplace, uh, interact just randomly interacting with people in shops and, and in your life. That's so interesting. Be, you know, I think about the job interview space because I'm, I'm often talking about business topics of, you know, mm-hmm. if you've got two candidates and you believe one of them speaks in a more appropriate way, that might just be because you're hearing something reflected back to you about the way you speak. Yep. And in fact, there's studies about this too, where people can really be discriminated against in the employment market um, based on how they speak. But a lot of, you know, you can say, oh, well, this person's just a little bit more comprehensible, something like this, right? So you think it's about their communication, not about that you're listening. But actually, a lot of communication is two-sided. And so in many ways, people kind of hear what they want to hear. And so I think it's really important to remember that when you're evaluating someone's speech to try to think about yourself as being a careful and, you know, unbiased listener. That's so important because so much when we talk about communication, it is about what you are doing, you the speaker, Mm -hmm. you the communicator. And I I love your message of listening is active work. You have a responsibility as a listener. I think that's so interesting. All right, everybody, the book is called How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do and What It Says About You. It is by Katherine Kinsler, professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. And that book is on sale right now wherever books are sold. Katherine, thank you so much. It was so nice to talk with you and catch up about your book. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Certainly. Anytime. Come back and visit us another day. Seven twenty WGN. It's Amy Guth. Thanks so much for being with us today. Another good song, Sarah. You're so good. This song. I feel like last time I was here, which was like April. I'm glad I even remember how to do radio. Um, I feel like last time I was here, I talked about the same album because it was the songs from the Big Chair Tears for Fears album, which I had on cassette and wore it out because oldness. Because <laughs> Gen X are over here. <laughs> it's a good jam, is my point. Anyway, so. What are you doing? Are you reading, like, generally right now in your life? Are you reading? No. No. I, uh, <laughs> nope. Not even. Nope, not at all. Uh, honestly. You're redoing your house, so you've got a lot going on. Listen, yeah, I mean, but even outside of that, I don't think I've read a book since undergrad. Come on! I don't like to read. I like documentaries. That's right. So, I've been watching documentaries. So not even nonfiction? No. So interestingly, I have found myself, um, it's very hard for me to deal with fiction right now. Really? I, I've, I've picked it up. I've tried, you know, there may or may not be someone who works here who's loaned me several beautiful works of fiction that I'm just like, I got to give her her books back because (laughs) I, but I can't do fiction right now. I can't, it's like, I feel like I'm taking my head out of the game. I can't Mm. do, I I can't do the escapist, which some people do really well. They're like, I, I need to take a break, read fiction or watch a, watch a fun movie to kind of, and then I can come back to watching the news or whatever's going on or, or dealing with a hard time in my life, whatever. I'm not that way. I'm like a, I need to keep my, my the news eye on all the, the time. Yeah. Which mm. is going to be my demise. Like, let's be clear. That will, that attitude will kill me for sure. That's fine. I mean, I think if you switch it up, you'll be okay. I like reading books of poetry. I do like, I poetry. read those. 
And I think that's also another way that you can still be in the news, but have like an art spin to it. And make it feel creative. Yeah. Yeah. Every other week, there is a Zoom poetry uh, class. What? That is actually um, Rob Telfer, who I've had on as a guest many times. He is a, an educator at Morton Arboretum. He is also a poet and he teaches a poetry class by Zoom every other week. That is super cool. I'm going to tweet out a link after it because it's really fun. It's kind of a pay what you can. And it's a fun group of people from all over the country that just show up on Zoom. It's Thursday, every other Thursday night. That's awesome. And it's like, I don't know how to write poetry, but for me, I I signed up for it because it was like, it's a fun break where for a minute I don't have to keep writing the phrase, these unprecedented times. Right. Or, you know, and he'll, he'll go like, okay, make a list of 10 things. What it's always a different theme, like 10 things happening in your neighborhood right now. Right. Okay. Pick one that's really speaking to you. Let's free write for five minutes about that. And it's not necessarily like a rhymy little poem. You just want right. to free write. And it's, I think it's just fun to just kind of do that. But when it comes to reading, I'm not, I'm not. I mean, it happens. It happens. It, it happens. totally happens. There's a fun, um, there's book riot, um, is a great website that has lots of cool literary stuff on it, but they had a cool thing that was the seven types of books that you read during a global pandemic that I thought was really interesting. The first one is dystopian fiction. Hmm. Cause you're like, you want to, if you're like a catastrophizer, you want right. to think of the worst case scenario. Like that's fair. That feels comforting to you. That's fair. Um, I've always liked a good dystopian read. I've always loved that. So that's not new for me, but I can't do fiction right now. Um, comfort reads. So that's like, you know, I mean, I actually, I know several people that have decided to reread the Harry Potter series right now because they're like, that was so fun. It was a good adventure and it was fun. I'm going to do that. I'm like, hey, you, go nuts. Do what you do. You do you, friend. Um, then there's the people that, that are reading the classics right now. They're mm-hmm. like, you know, not leaving, not leaving home. So I'm going to take this time to read War and Peace like I said I did in high school, but really didn't. I've seen some people on social media admitting to that, that they're like, okay. I actually use the cliff notes for the AP test, and now I'm going to actually read that book. I can actually say that every book I was required to read in high school, I read. Same. Um, I have reread a few of them, and I appreciated them more now. I've never reread any of them. It was hard enough getting through them the first time. That's right. There was there were a couple that I actively hated, and then I met people as an adult that really loved those books and I thought well what did I miss and I reread them I'm like okay I see what they loved about them I still don't love it but I, I appreciate the work that it was did they make you read Catcher in the Rye yes how'd you like it it's fine hmm. I mean I think Holding Caulfield is like kind of this um, if I knew him personally I would not I couldn't stand him mm, I think he, okay. he's like that guy we all know that guy right we all we all have that guy we all know the holding Caulfield in our lives and you're like Ugh, that guy's gonna be there I don't want to go <laughs> he's like that guy <laughs> someone just got super mad at me for saying that probably because like, they're probably him. that guy he's that guy right the whole holding Caulfield if you just got mad that means you are that guy <laughs> if you're, you're sitting there guy. and you're thinking do you know that guy like, and you I don't identify then that means guy. you're right. that guy if you don't know that guy you might be that guy okay the other thing you might be reading is current affairs and social science things I think that's where I am right now like what I can read is I want to be in it and know it deeper Mm. I'm like, give me the history of this. I want to know what's happening. That's good, though. It's good. It, I, I think it's important to know the history of it. That way you fully important. understand what's even going on. But then you get into the paradox of knowledge thing, right? Where the more you know, the less you realize you know. Mm. You know? And, yes. then, and then you're going like, oh, I could read for the rest of my life on this topic and I will never know everything. Right. And that be, that becomes like this knowledge tragedy that I think about every single day. The other thing people read uh, of these seven types of books you read during a global pandemic, cookbooks, which I collect the heck out of cookbooks. Really? Yes. I, I don't love have them. any cookbooks. Now, here's the, here's the dumb thing about me. Well, not the dumb. There's several dumb <laughs> things about me, but here's one dumb thing about me. I will not follow a recipe. Because I like to be creative. Cooking is very relaxing to me. It's very creative. It's fun. I look. I will flip through a cookbook to get an inspiration piece, mm-hmm. and then I'll go do something. Hmm. But I will never. I'm trying to think. Follow the instructions. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I could count on one hand the time I've. Sometimes if it sounds really complicated, I'll try it once. But then once I get where it's going, then I'm like, nah. But I think that needs a little more garlic. That needs a little more of this or what? I mean, I think that's fair. You know, yeah. certain cookbooks can sometimes have a recipe that seems a bit bland. Yeah. Could use some more seasonings. That's right. Yeah. Or, like I have this one recipe or this the recipe. I have a cookbook of all this fascinating Jamaican food, but it's it's really talking about like the history of Jamaica and all the different 
people that were there and why and whatever. But there's this one recipe that sounded delicious and it was I love spicy food, but I was like, I'm just going to go ahead and say that is going to be way too hot. So I'm going to cut that down a little bit and then bring We're it back do in. less paprika on this one. Less oh, it cayenne. was straight up habanero, fresh habaneros that you Ooh, blister oh, over open flame. No. And I was like, I'm just going to do one, not the five it's asking for. Yeah, it's hot. My best friend, Maddie, she was born and raised in Jamaica and mm-hmm. spent majority of her life there until she came here. And when she first moved here, she made me this shrimp dish and it was so good. But hot. But it was so hot. Like I was sweating while eating it, <laughs> but it was so good. She was like, are you okay? Like I feel fine. I'm like, oh, yeah. yes, you feel fine because you're accustomed to this. Yeah, this is fine for you. I, I am not. It's hot. It's really good. We'll be paying But I'm struggling. And then she used spices from Jamaica that she brought with her. Mm, that's my oh, that's my a, tongue. That's one of my favorite souvenir things. Like when, back when traveling was a thing that existed in the world. which Right, because now it doesn't yeah. anymore. That's my favorite thing to find like what's an, what's an ingredient here in this place that I can't find at home. That's, Absolutely. I love doing that because, and I love to bring people stuff like, oh, I know, you know, my friend is a baker, so I know she'll love this kind of cool thing, this weird flower that you can't find in the, you know, in Chicago, whatever. So, so fun. Oh, we have a caller. Let's say hi to Sherry. Hi, Sherry. What are you reading right now? Hi, Amy. So, um, you might be interested in this because it is nonfiction. Okay. It's a memoir by Trevor Noah called Born a Crime. And he was born in um, South Africa just at the end of apartheid. Yes. And so it has a lot of historic information. A lot. I learned a lot. I um, I actually, I read part and I listened to part, and I actually would recommend, I'm not a good listener, I'm a much better reader, and I actually preferred listening to this because he's telling, he's, he's narrating it and he's telling his own story, and he uses different voices, and it, it was just fascinating, and I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, you know, I'm so glad you said that. I have had that book in the back of my mind. Since it came out, because I, I like Trevor Noah, and I think he's a really thoughtful and entertaining and smart person, and I've always thought, mm-hmm. I should read that, and I keep forgetting to read it, so I'm writing it down right now, so I don't forget. I'm so glad to hear you. Absolutely, your- and, and like I said, this is one that I would even, I would I would recommend you listen to. Mm-hmm. I, I listened to it when I was walking my dog, oh. and when I was needle pointing in the yard, and because he's narrating it. You, it just feels like you're with a friend, and he's and he, and the friend is telling you the story of their life. I love really that. good. That's so yeah. fun, Sherry. Thank you so much for calling. I appreciate you having a, have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye bye. Oh, definitely going to put that back in my list because I keep forgetting to read it. All right. Well, we have got to take a break, get to news, all that good stuff. On the other side of news, we're talking with author Michelle Weldon. You definitely want to stick around for that. Back in a bit on seven twenty WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It's Amy Guth. Thanks so much for being with us today. We've been talking with authors all day because I don't know about you, but I love to dive into a really good book, and I love talking about books with really smart and fun people. And our next guest is absolutely a smart and fun person. Michelle Weldon is an author, uh, an award-winning author, a journalist, emerita faculty in journalism at Northwestern, and is the author of six nonfiction books, including her latest, a collection of essays called Act Like You're Having a Good Time. I love that title. As well as two earlier critically acclaimed memoirs. Her essays have appeared in The New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, Time, The Guardian, Slate, Chicago Tribune, Forbes, USA Today, NBC, Cosmo, and more. What I'm saying to you is you've probably read her work already. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us today. Always lovely to talk with you. Great, Amy. Thanks for having me. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday to you. So tell me about this <laughs> new book that you have. So um, I started writing essays about this topic about two or three years ago and wanted to dive into what it's like to be a, a, a mature woman at my age, I'm 62, who's trying to figure things out and not uh, an understanding that I don't have all the answers. So I dive into different aspects of life, work, and meaning, and what, what does it mean to have friendships at this age? What does it mean to try and find a, a meaningful work life at, and affecting the world in a positive way? And also coming uh, clean with shortcomings and failures and and all of that and trying to have some hope about the future. Mm. 
there's so many big theme, themes that emerge really quickly in your book of, of, and I thought was interesting in looking at the reviews, the early reviews for it, it seems like it really resonated with with various people in in very deep ways, but in different ways. So it seems like it has the potential to be a very personal book in that way. But some big themes like ageism, white privilege, creativity, feeling like this feeling of whether or not you're doing enough, those are not small things to wrestle with in one book. That's right. And, you know, and it's coming at, at such a, a critical time, an unprecedented time in our history. And, you know, there are so many bigger issues, of course. I mean, we have we have the pandemic, we have, you know, centuries of racial injustice that are, we're all grappling with and, and trying to make sense of, of economic hardships and all that. And so it feels a little bit at once myopic and selfish and silly to dive into what, you know, one person's life view is, but also feels at the same time, ironically, very important because this is if this is the you know one life we have at this one time we are given we need to make the most of it and to look at our decision making and to look at the way we live our lives honestly and also if it falls short to try and find some solace in that it that that's okay it's okay you didn't meet all of your dreams you're not going to uh, be able to solve everything by, you know, throwing out all the old clothes in your basement, that it's not simple and that it's complicated. And there is solace in having someone articulate that. So that was my wish. Hmm. There's also this theme of this kind of radical self-honesty and being honest with other women about your life and, and who you are. Talk with me about that a bit. Well, you and I have talked about that quite a bit. <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, I find that in this age of presenting ourselves in a certain way on social media and having, uh, you know, the fallacy of, of perfection and, and you know, ambition uh, expressed as, well, just, you know, try and just keep going and keep persisting and it'll work and, and you know, write, write yourself all your goals and check them off one by one, that it's really important that as women speaking to each other, we say, well, you know, actually that doesn't work. There are a lot of other factors at play, and it's okay. Just make the best out of it that you can and, and keep trying, but but forgive yourself for for being human and, and try to be the best human you can, but it, it doesn't all work out to perfection. And I think it it really behooves us to be honest with each other. I think that's such an important point because there is sort of, especially on social media, I think, I mean, if I get, if someone else, one more person is trying to sell me like a webinar of how to, I don't know, <laughs> kill it in marketing or something, I'm going to scream because there's so many of them of, of like these very well-crafted, you know, webinars or, or classes or master classes or whatever that, that, you know, that, that kind of puts the onus on you somehow that, wow, if I could, if only I could try harder, I would, I would be more and do this and I could be this influencer or whatever. You know, I think we, we like drive ourselves crazy feeling like we're just not enough. And I, I think that's a really important theme here that, that you've, you've hit on. Well, I hope so. And, and, you know, when I think about other writers who, you know, magnificent writers who dive into uh, self-reflection, you know, let's, let's look at Eat, Pray, Love, which was finding yourself you know, all over the world, which really kicked this off. It, it's like, well, well, some of us work all the time, and I can't just drop everything and 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 you know go traipsing around the world. I mean, I'm a I'm a parent. I've raised three sons, and I have you know fiscal responsibilities. So um, I feel that there has to be some truthfulness about what you have the capacity to discover and do about yourself. You know, it, it, it also, I scream when people talk about self-care, you know, it's like, well, everyone needs to have self-care. Are you doing enough self-care? It's like, really? Now? No. <laughs> you know, I used to say when I, when my, my children were small, it's like self-care is brushing my teeth. So, <laughs> right. And, and, you know, in this incredibly chaotic time of quarantining and working from home and, and sheltering and just so much chaos and, and worry and anxiety um, to be honest about what you are capable of doing uh, and, and how that reflects on you is really important. 
and, and that it isn't finite and there aren't five steps. Yeah. There are five million. Yeah, that's right. I think that's so very important. You also really dig into themes of the importance of creativity in this book. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, that's really important to me. I've always been, a, you know, a writer. So corny. I had my own newspaper and I was 10. It was called the Juvenile Journal. <laughs> and uh, mandated uh, subscribers, aunts and uncles and neighbors. And um, I have gotten back in the last, oh, about five to seven years, I've gotten back into painting and sketching. I started with classes at the Art Institute, and uh, now I I do summer painting classes. I actually just painted outside for the last uh, three hours in my oil painting class. And I, I find that just escaping from everything else I have to do, that that frees me up. It just is, it is incredibly relaxing. And it's also important, I I feel like, to be anonymous sometimes. It's like no one knows you, no one knows, they just know like, oh, you use blue a lot, (laughs) right? Or you're you're the woman who likes to paint trees. And it's just nice to be um, in a, a community or even by yourself, just making something that you believe is beautiful and it expresses what you want to express. Yeah, I find that uh, that really is helpful. Mm. So many really important themes here. What is the biggest takeaway that you want people to have after reading your book? That you are okay the way you are. And my uh, the book is titled Act Like You're Having a Good Time. It's what my father used to say to us. There are six of us in uh, seven and a half years. And we, we complained a lot, and my father is, is really very chill. My mother was not chill, but my father was. And if we would say, no, I don't want to do that, or don't make me, he would just look at us and say, well, just act like you're having a good time. <laughs> and it, did, it wasn't about fake it till you make it. It was about be positive. You don't know what's going to happen, right? Be positive about this one thing. Go into it with a better attitude, and you might come out with, with something different. And, and, you know, it's not a bad way to live your life. Not, not to be, you know, disingenuous or, or fake, but to be someone who's always looking for the positive. And, you know, that's a great lesson I've learned from my parents. And, and I don't know if I passed it on to my sons or not, but I sure hope I did. And, and I hope people take away from this book, you know, men or women, whatever generation, that it is possible to look to the positive, even at times like this, and, and that you are okay the way you are, trying to be the best you can be, and that it is not simple, and it's okay to fall short. Words to live by. The book is called Act Like You're Having a Good Time, Essays. It is by Michelle Weldon. Michelle, thanks so much. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Amy, and I had a good time. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. We'll do it again. Thanks, Amy. Okay, bye-bye. All right, we're going to take a little break. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It's Amy Guth. Thanks so much for hanging out today. I enjoyed talking with all these authors. This was so cool. I love the reason I love talking with authors is because I feel like you know you get to kind of explore their brain a little bit by reading the book first, and then you get to talk to them, and you're you know you get to just kind of geek out on the thing they geeked out about. I love it. So if you follow me on any social media, I will be sure and post after the broadcast, the the authors in the books, so you can find them. And it will also be at WGNRadio.com. When the podcast is ready, it will you will be able to see all those people and buy all their books because they were all really fascinating books. So you got to get into all that. But we were talking about books a little bit before we talked to Michelle. We were talking about the seven kind of books that you read during a pandemic. We talked Yes, about, I want to hear us finish this okay, list. Okay, dystopian fiction. We talked about that. Comfort reads, classics, current affairs and social science. We were talking about cookbooks of how like we're all in on that. The other two on that list, though, introspective nonfiction, which is not a really a term that I had knew about, but it was like, it's a nonfiction book. It's not necessarily a memoir, but it's something that makes you dig deep and really think about not a self-help, but like, for example, Jenny O'Dell's how to do nothing, resisting the attention economy. Very good book. Hmm. Like things, exactly. Things that make you go like, Hmm, that's an interesting idea, right? About self. Yes. Like, I don't know, any of the like Zen and the Art of Whatever, any of those series of books, like anything that's not necessarily like about chilling out, but just something that makes you kind of go, 
Hmm, that's a really, it could be a memoir, right? It right. could certainly be a memoir that makes you think about mortality or, or ambition or whatever your deal is. Um, but something that just makes you dig deep. So that's a thing. I could see that. But I could also see some people being like, I am too exhausted to be dealing with that kind of thing right now. Right. Like I, I have to deal with the world. Want me to deal with myself too? <laughs> I'm not doing both. That's a lot. You got to pick one. Right. The other one, which is a funny name for a category of book, and that is called Doorstoppers. And that is the book that you have had sitting around a long time that I'm going to get to. I love that. That's every book in my house. A doorstopper. <laughs> that you've been like, okay, one day I am totally going to read this whole entire book. And then you're just, you know, life happens. That's the thing. I say that all the time. Like, guys, life happens. Good intent. Like, you're doing, we're all doing our best, but like, life gets in the way. Things happen. Things get interrupted, you know. Flat tires happen. People leave your life or come into your life. Like, things happen. Sometimes, right. you know. And now that we have nothing but time. Bingo. I can get to that book. That's exactly right. Then now you're like, you know what? I've had this sitting around since 1984. I think I'll finally crack this bad boy that's open. A, that's a while. That's more than a doorstopper at this point. <laughs> this, <laughs> I don't think that makes doorstop uh, quality anymore. I think it's past that level. Yeah, that's right. You know what? I go Back to cookbooks, but that are kind of in this category. I have a bunch of old... Uh, my dad was in the hospitality business. I think I've talked about that a few times here, but um, he he was in the restaurant world. And so he has a fascinating, he always had cool books that he would just find and people would give him books about like a particular type of food or a wine or a spirit or whatever. And he used to like, he has all these like cool notes in them. And I have a couple of books that were my grandmother's and she had neat notes in them. And I think they're, they're really interesting little glimpses. Like I have um, a thing for my grandmother and there's a recipe card stuck in the book that's like her version of this thing on page 44. So it's like her version is a little better than she liked it more than what's in the book, but she still wanted to put it in the proper place. But there's a note on there that was like, you know, made this when uh, so-and-so came for lunch um, in 1974 or whatever. And uh, it was the one dish that she didn't complain about. So remember that next time she comes over. <laughs> it was like, and it was like a, a friend of the family that I still know, right? So it was like, oh, she complained about all the food except for this one dish. That's really funny. So I think there's um, some, some of that where you're like, I haven't looked at that book in years, but you can kind of crack a book open and see writing and stuff and see notes. I always like that. love that. I, I feel like I see it a lot in movies where you'll see like the, the cookbook that gets passed down generation through generation. Yeah. I think I've always thought that was really beautiful. My family doesn't have one. Yeah. I'm going to tell my mom to go make one. Well, and that's the thing is like the books that I got from my grandmother, they're like something she ordered, you know, a made right. for TV or like a Better Homes and Gardens thing. You know, they're not like a beautiful leather bound right. heirloom. They're but she still like made that. it personal by putting her own notes in yeah. there. She's so little- you get to look back you know totally. and then pass it along to whoever comes after you in the next generations to come i may be the end of the line but you never know <laughs> i mean hey you never know you know cousins might come into play you that's never right know. i'm, you know, I'm counting, nephews. My, counting on my brother to have all the kids the, hey listen <laughs> someone has to do it I, know. I think my parents gave up on me a long time ago <laughs> they, it's okay i haven't heard one of those grandkids comments in literal years yeah you're clear you're in the coast my mom hasn't started yet she's good she's like yeah i don't want to be your grandma anytime soon i'm okay take your time and it's a fine line like you'll hear this like take your time and then like one day it flips suddenly they realize like oh wait a minute you're getting older you're getting older and i want something little to cuddle right i think it's about their own mortality like that's when it flips when they're realizing it, it could be a lot of it is like, take your time. Okay, well, yeah, you're taking too, too much, much time. time. Right. <laughs> Not that much <laughs> let's, time. Let's rearrange how much time you need to take here. That's right. That's right. So, you know, but who knows where my vast collection of cookbooks will end up. I do put, I don't write in them, but I will put like little post-its in there and just be like, added pepper, added garlic. This was terrible. Never make it again or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> my friend Carmen did that. We were on a uh, FaceTime a couple weeks ago. And, you know, I feel like now that people are at home more, they want to they want to cook more. Yeah. Um, you know, to save as a way to save money. And she found some recipe for like smothered pork chops. And okay. She showed me like in real time what it was looking like. And then I saw the picture. I'm like, yeah, this isn't looking this doesn't look smothered. It looks rather dry. It looks beaten to death. I think you're death. missing some, some, you're missing something here. You, you failed to do something. Yes. Some, something's missing. And then she literally called me an hour later and was like, yeah, that was not good. I'm not trying that ever again. Oh, no. <laughs> like, oh, it's okay. I'm delighted by 
how much cooking is going on right now. I love like every night on Facebook. There's even a Facebook group of like quarantine meals that I'm in. Really? It's so fun. People just posting pictures of beautiful things they made. But I when, feel like you've mastered social media to find all the good stuff, like between the poetry classes and the the different food things you're looking into. Like. Am I quarantine? Like, is my quarantine going wrong? Because I don't know any of these. My things. friend, you need to step up your quarantine game. There's I do nothing, but there, I am. There is something for everyone on the strange, terrible place that is the internet. <laughs> you, know, you never know. <laughs> you know. Listen, I'm, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. It's all good. I got you. I got your back. You Thank help you. me with music. I will help you find find your place in the weird Facebook group. And that's how friendship works. That's how it works. That's how it works. Well, my goodness, we're already out of time. It goes so fast. We are just seconds away from turning things over to Chris Bowden, who has the pregame show starting at 1.30 on the dot. So again, we talked with Lee Weiner, Catherine Kinsler, and Michelle Weldon today about their new books. I will be posting links to all of them. But the faster thing to do is check out WGNRadio.com. When the podcast is posted, they're going to be all their names the names of their books, all that good stuff right there so you can order them. Support local authors.